Please turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19, Bildad has just given his sermon on hell, essentially to Job back in chapter 18, uh, telling Job that all of the things that are involved in hell and being forsaken by God are true of him. And now it's Job's turn to respond, which he does here in chapter 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and has closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my ways so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And My hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book, oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. You have probably heard the saying, with friends like these, who needs enemies? The reality is that sometimes our friends can be our worst enemies. Just because someone has proven to be a friend in the past, continues to claim to be a friend, doesn't really mean anything. Uh, That really doesn't mean anything if they are treating you in hurtful ways like an enemy. Along these lines, I have pondered the question, 
Can Christians be instruments of Satan? There's the related question, can a fellow Christian be an enemy? For example, Romans 12 talks about blessing those who persecute you and curse you. In that passage, the Apostle Paul is talking about how to react when you are mistreated, when you are so mistreated that you are tempted to avenge yourselves. Is it possible for a fellow believer to be that one who persecutes, who curses, and who mistreats you? Could it happen that the enemy upon whose head you heap those burning coals is a brother or sister in Christ? And what about being an instrument of Satan? Could a fellow Christian be a voice for the cause of Satan pushing you to give in to a particular temptation? Is it possible for a Christian to promote false doctrine and mislead other believers? Well, as part of answering that, I would have you recall the time that Peter rebuked the Lord for suggesting that the Lord would suffer and die, and Jesus responded by saying to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus saw Peter's words as the work of Satan. Satan himself tempting him to set aside his calling which was to be obedient to the point of death on the cross. I think that example alone should suffice to prove that indeed a fellow believer can be an instrument of Satan. The additional fact that believers can at times be unloving like Job's friends should also settle the question whether Christians can function as enemies of one another. Along these lines, I would point out the relationship of Satan to Job's friends. After Satan's interactions with God and and with Job is recorded in chapters 1 and 2, notice Satan is not mentioned again. But was Satan inactive? Um, After what happened there and what's recorded for us in chapters 1 and 2 of, of the book of Job? I think it should be understood that Job's friends have rushed in to take Satan's place. Now, not knowingly, not deliberately, But Satan has very much remained at work through the faithlessness of Job's friends. Satan is our accuser, remember, who has as his goal to discredit our salvation in Christ. And he is ever eager to point out our sin to God and to others and to make the claim that there is no payment that is possibly adequate to save us from our sin. And when Satan disappeared from the scene, Job's friends served essentially the same role as Satan by accusing Job of sin and trying to undermine any assurance that he might have of being right with God. Yes, as sad as it is, and out of place as it is, it can can happen that with Christian friends we have, we don't need enemies. As Job responds to Bildad's second speech, Job is particularly frustrated with his friends. He starts out this chapter, chapter 19, rebuking his friends for their attacks. Of course, their attacks have only been verbal. Uh, They're not responsible for what has happened to Job. Job rightly explains that when it comes to the physical losses that he's experienced of his wealth and of his children and of his health, it's God who attacks him. That's what he gets at in verses 6 through 12. While Job's relationship with God is his ultimate concern, that is always in the background, Job returns in verse 13 to voicing his frustration over his human relationships, and in particular, how isolated he is from any and all of his friends and relatives. 
So we see that his pain, no doubt, is multifaceted. In fact, in verse 20, he describes his physical condition. It sounds horrible. It sounds like he is an emaciated pile of skin and bones. But we also notice that he spends only one verse in this chapter on his health. It's not primarily his health that is on his mind. What is particularly painful is how he is being treated by people he trusted to love him. Verse 21, to me, reads like the climax of this chapter, where Job there cries out as his frustration spills over, Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. I've taken that call for mercy as the theme of this chapter, and I see in these verses three supporting points. First of all, what, where we will be dealing with what has happened that leads Job to call out for mercy. Second, why these things have happened that lead Job to call out for mercy. And then Job's response to his friends who so far have shown no mercy. And yet his response includes an expectant hope of vindication, uh, vindication from God that will prove that his friends are wrong. There's a lot here in this chapter for us to consider, and this morning we are only going to cover the what, really point one of this three-point outline, which leaves points two and three for next time. So this morning we deal with what? What has happened that leads Job to call out for mercy? So Job is calling out for mercy in the context of his friends who have been tormenting him with their words. Now before we get too far, it should be clear to us, to everyone, what Job is desiring when he calls out for mercy. What, is, what do we mean by mercy? What is the definition of mercy? Well, mercy is essentially a form of love. And specifically, it is love that takes the form of helping people who are in need. I think sometimes you'll find mercy confused with compassion, but actually mercy flows out of compassion. Compassion is when you suffer with another person and desire to relieve their suffering. But take note of the fact that you can be compassionate without being merciful. You can have compassionate feelings for someone going through a tragedy without actually doing something to help. Mercy is the love of actually helping those who are suffering. In the Hebrew, the word for mercy refers to helping the poor, the, the needy, even orphans. And as this mercy comes from God, it refers to the bestowal of redemption, the actual bestowing of redemption from enemies and evils and sins. And so in some mercy is love as it takes the very concrete form of helping those who are hurting. And Job is, of course, hurting in a number of ways, and he's not getting relief, which prompts him to call out for mercy. And the first cause of his anguish, as mentioned, is his friends who with their words have offered no comfort, verses 1 through 5. They have tormented him, he says. They have broken him in pieces. That word torment is actually the, the same rather strong word that's used in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 12. And there in the context, the Lord is inflicting. That's the same word that, that is found in our text that's translated as tormented. But there in, in Lamentations, it says the Lord is inflicting his people with sorrow on the day of his fierce anger as he drove them into exile. So these friends are inflicting sorrow upon Job. 
Richard Belcher comments on the words of Job's friends. He says, these words have been like sledgehammers that break rocks in pieces. Hartley adds, Job feels crushed emotionally by their words. And moving on in the text, furthermore, he says, they've cast reproach upon him, a word that refers to humiliation and disgrace, and they have disgraced him multiple times, ten times, Job says. We might wonder, ten times? What does that mean? Because at this point, Job has had only five addresses from his friends. And so some have theorized that within those five addresses, there must be ten different charges that have been brought by his friends. But I would guess that there are probably more than that if we were to try and count them. But more probable is the suggestion that Job is here exaggerating, and he means enough is enough. And there's actually a biblical basis for agreeing with that uh, interpretation because a lot of times in Scripture, 10, the number 10, is used as a figure of speech, and it means repeatedly or often. Regardless, in their insistence on casting reproach on him, he says they have wronged him. And that word in the Hebrew really means to be astounded. It means to be stunned. Job cannot believe that they aren't ashamed by their words. Their words have stunned him. They have left him dazed. They have left him in shock. And he explains further that even if it is true, hypothetically, that he has erred. And that word erred in the Hebrew, it's a word that refers to unintentional sin. Even so, this error doesn't involve them. This is a matter between him and God. But Job's friends have taken the opportunity in the midst of all of this to magnify themselves which refers to them setting themselves up as superiors to Job, morally and spiritually. And notice, not just over him, they're not just magnifying themselves over him, but against him. They've used the occasion of his disgrace as proof of his guilt, and therefore as an argument against him. And what makes this situation especially painful for Job is that his disgrace is not simply what has happened to him in terms of his earthly losses, The greatest disgrace of all is his friend's insistence that he's this horrible sinner getting what he deserves. Job's issue with his friends is that they are not for him, but against him. And then there's the matter of Job calling out for mercy in the context of how God has treated him. If there is one thing Job can agree on with his friends is that God is sovereignly in control of what has happened to him. The greater question is why these things are happening and whether or not Job should expect mercy. Job's friends have been arguing that Job's troubles are what he deserves because of some horrible, unconfessed sin. And if that is true, then of course there's no reason for Job to expect to receive mercy. But as far as Job is concerned, he can expect to receive mercy, not because he deserves it, but because he knows God is a merciful God. He's a God who has promised to help us as his people when we call out to him for help. And yet Job's experience has proved otherwise. He summarizes his situation there in verse 6. Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Especially that phrase, God has put me in the wrong, is the subject of of much interpretation and differences in interpretation. It could be that Job is boldly accusing God of injustice, which is why some translations have Job saying, Know then that God has wronged me, or know then that God has treated me in an unjust or 
crooked way. And that word crooked comes in because literally in the Hebrew, it means, the word there means to make crooked or bent. Bildad back in chapter 8, verse 3, in his first address to Job, used the very same Hebrew word to refer to the perversion of justice. There, Bildad was saying that God does not pervert justice. He does not make justice crooked or bent. He does not pervert the right, Job, uh, Bildad adds. And now some would argue that Job is directly contradicting what Bildad said and is making the point that in his case, God it has perverted justice that God is punishing Job for sin he has not committed. And then there are those who would say that Job is, is not going that far. Um, perhaps Job is saying that God has treated him as though he is someone who is crooked or perverted, but in reality he's not. That yes, to all outward appearance, it would certainly seem that Job must be a terrible guy, and things especially appear this way when, as Job says, God has closed his net about me. There, there, there doesn't seem to be any let up. There doesn't seem to be any escape from judgment. God is relentless. It's been suggested by some commentators that there's a distinction going on here that might not be immediately obvious, which is that there's a difference between saying Job is a victim of God's injustice and saying that God has temporarily denied justice to Job. Um, notice in the second part of verse 7, Job gives his own commentary on, on what he has in mind when he says, there is no justice. If a murderer is released from death row, someone who actually is a murderer, and he's released, that's injustice. If a murderer is on death row for many years, that's just a delay in justice. The family of the murdered victim might well say, there is no justice, but in reality, there isn't injustice. Justice just hasn't happened yet. And in Job's case, he has maintained that if he could only have a hearing with God and, and, and God would, would sit down with him and, and would explain himself, it would be evident that Job is actually innocent and that these judgments that Job has experienced have been unrelated to sin. And this is an important and significant perspective to contemplate. Job has not been accusing God of making some kind of a final, unjust declaration concerning him. And, and Job's concern has not been over what God has done to him. And that's surprising because we might imagine someone in Job's shoes being angry with God and even demanding compensation for having treated him unjustly. But Job isn't interested in suing God. What, what bothers Job is that his current situation and as far as he can, as he thinks about it, um, his, his situation can't be explained. It can't be defended as just punishment of his sin. And the evidence for this, as he sees it, is that though he has been a man of integrity and faithfulness, he calls to God for help, and God doesn't help. God is a God of mercy, and Job has been seeking his mercy, and there remains none for him. It makes sense for God to withhold mercy from wicked unbelievers, but it doesn't make sense for God to treat a faithful believer like this. Isn't this a perversion of what, of what is right to, to send wrathful judgment against an innocent man? And this brings to mind the interpretation of those who think that really what's been perverted or made crooked here is Job's life. 
In other words, Job is perplexed by how God has made his path crooked with all kinds of troubles when before he was in a state of prosperity. But even if we say that the crookedness concerns Job's life and has nothing to do with God's justice, at least on the surface, there still remains the looming question of why Job's life is like this, since there's no glaring sin in his life. He can't figure out why God would bless him like a believer, only then to bend his path into this series of tragedies consistent with the judgment of wicked men. In other words, Job is struggling ultimately with the propriety of what God has done to him. After all, regardless of the precise accusation that Job here intends against God, he does hold God responsible for what has happened to him. And what follows then in verses 7 through 12, as Job fleshing out what it's been like to have this crooked life and to be trapped in it. And it seems that there are two main images that Job paints for us. So we have, first of all, in verse 7, Job as the victim of a mugger in the streets. And he cries out, violence! He's being attacked, but no one comes to his rescue. Ironically, the God of mercy, who one would expect to answer his cry for, for help, is the mugger himself. No wonder Job concludes there is no justice. And then verses 8 through 12 paint the picture of Job being like a city under siege from which there is no escape because, again, God has closed his net around him. In verse 8, God has blocked all the escape routes and in setting darkness upon his path has left Job wondering what he can do to try to change his situation. There's no clear path forward. There's no apparent way of reversal. He seems to be locked in to this life under the judgment of God. And then in verse 9, Job is like the king of this besieged city who has been stripped of his glory and crown. He was once a great man. He, he was once a person that people looked to for wisdom and leadership, and now he has no standing. In verse 10, Job's life is pictured by that besieged city, attacked and destroyed on every side. As Job considers his earthly life, there's nothing but judgment and destruction. So thorough are the attacks of God against him that any sense of hope, he says, has been pulled up like a tree. I think back to chapter 14 where Job brought up the figure of a tree as a symbol of something that can be cut down and yet will grow again. It points to hope in the midst of destruction. A tree sprouting from a stump is a very fitting picture for the resurrection of our bodies from the dead. But there's no hope if that stump gets yanked from the ground. If this tree gets yanked root and all out of the ground, there's no hope. The heart of the problem is set forth in verse 11, that God regards, as far as Job is concerned, uh, God regards Job as his enemy. Uh, he's coming against him in hatred to destroy him. This is what Job has concluded based on his experience. In verse 12, there is a return to the theme of Job being under siege by God. God has, he says, gathered his troops. He's gathered all of his great army against him. He's laid the siege ramp against the walls of Job's life. God is in an all-out war against Job and is not going to stop until the city is leveled. Remember how in chapter 18, Bildad gave that powerful sermon on hell his point is that Job is experiencing all of the aspects of what it is to be forsaken by God 
And Job does not disagree. He believes that what he's experiencing feels exactly like what sinners experience who are under the white-hot wrath of God in hell. And then Job's sense of forsakenness is only increased by how the people in his life are treating him. He gives a list here of pretty much everyone that he has a relationship with. And he starts out with two broad categories of his brothers. That term can refer to actual brothers, as well as people of one's clan or country. And then he adds those who knew him. He lists more specifically relatives, people closely, closely related to him by blood. He speaks of close friends, of guests that he had in his home, of servants, his wife, his brothers and sisters, young children. He closes out this section with a broad summary, all of his intimate friends and all those whom he loved. None of these people, think of it, none of these people have proved to be merciful in his suffering. He says these people are far from him, wholly estranged from him. They have failed him. They have forgotten him. His servants who used to come at his beck and call now act like they don't even know him, even to the point of ignoring his calls for mercy. His breath is repulsive to his wife and siblings, probably due to his illness, so that they, they don't even want to be close to him, have any contact with him. Even young children want nothing to do with Job and talk badly about him. Think about it, normally young children are accepting of people because in their ignorance and in their innocence, they don't understand the adult world where reputation and biases and prejudices exist. But these children's minds have likely been poisoned by hearing adult gossip about Job. At the very least, even they are disgusted by the sight of Job and figure he must be some kind of monster. As far as Job is concerned, he has not only been forsaken by God, he has been forsaken also by man. So what should we take away from this scripture so far by way of application? First of all, we must not be like Job's friends who are devoid of mercy. One commentator pointed out something that struck me as true. It's not normal to have to ask friends for pity. It's not normal to have to ask friends for mercy. You perhaps have to ask an enemy, stop, stop the attack, show some compassion, show some mercy. But things have become very dire if you have to ask your friends to show mercy. And may it never be that your friends have to plead with you to show mercy. Remember, it's not your job, it's not your place to help God punish people, even if they actually deserve it. He calls us to help people in need. He never calls upon us to hurt other people, not even unbelievers. I had us earlier read, I read to you the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's important to, in this context to think of that parable and how it defines mercy very much in terms of help, concrete help to a person in need. It, it, it defines who your neighbor is the neighbor to whom you are to give mercy, who you are called to love in practical ways, meeting their needs. And the answer of Scripture, the answer, the, the, the lesson of that parable is that your neighbor is anyone, anyone and everyone in need that you come across in your path in life. So you are called to love, 
You are called to be merciful. Don't be like Job's friends. And second, recognize that a lack of mercy, and we all lack mercy to some degree, a lack of mercy is often grounded in sinful judging. You have determined that so-and-so deserves his trials. He doesn't deserve mercy. But do you really know that? What God is doing in people's lives is not so easy to determine. People thought Jesus was justly forsaken by God as he was suffering there to to death on the cross. He thought he was justly under the wrath of God. The truth is sometimes more complicated than what we first realize. The truth is that Jesus was himself innocent of any sin. The truth is also that Jesus was guilty before God only because he had voluntarily taken responsibility for our sins. His death was about the sinless Lamb of God taking upon himself our sins and suffering for them, the just for the unjust. Third, remember that mercy is never to be disconnected from grace. Thankfully, we don't receive mercy from God only when we deserve it. If mercy was a matter of deserving it, when would we know mercy? This understanding of grace should guide your interactions with both believers and unbelievers. Are we to withhold mercy from people until we know they deserve love? Well, that would be contrary to the gospel. We are to help sinners as a way to help them understand the grace involved in God showing any of us mercy. Keep in mind the truth that you and I don't have an infallible knowledge of what God is doing in people's lives. He may be showing mercy to an unbeliever as an act of kindness, leading them to repentance. He may be withholding mercy in judgment. He may be be withholding mercy in loving chastening. Let's say we know exactly what God is doing in someone's life. Is it our place to condemn and to withhold mercy from anyone in need? Our job is to point people to God's grace. It is our job to set forth the truth of God's character and of his gracious ways with sinners. And all of us are sinners. A merciful approach to Job would be to say something like this, Job, if you have sinned and are refusing to repent, then know that God is ready and willing to forgive you. And we can recognize that Job's friends have said that. They've been willing to say that. They have pointed out, um, they believe he's a sinner, they, they believe that he's refusing to repent of his sin. He's hiding his sin. He's being stubborn and won't repent. But they have been willing to say, and they have told him, that God will forgive you. This will turn around. God will be ready and willing to forgive you. So we can say Job's friends have at least been willing to say that. But they should also say, let's add, Job, if you haven't sinned, if you haven't sinned to bring these trials on yourself, then there must be a gap in our understanding of God's ways with his children. Nevertheless, know this, if you are a man of faith, what is happening to you cannot be the wrath of God. There must be some other explanation. And you must never doubt that God is faithful to his covenant promises. He is faithful to his people. And in the end, somehow, in some way, you will be vindicated. And that's all Job wanted to hear. That would have been a huge source of comfort. That would have been a huge change in approach from his friends, that would have been merciful. If we want to be merciful, even as God is merciful, 
We must never tell anyone. I know what's going on, what God is doing in your life. And we must never tell those who are suffering that they are outside of the hope of the gospel. No, it is especially those who are suffering who need to hear about the mercy of God in Christ and in some about how he suffered the just for the unjust in order to reconcile us to God. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we would be merciful even as we have been shown mercy. Lord, that we would recognize that you have in very concrete ways helped us, delivering us from the, curses, the curse of sin and, and, and the consequences of sin. And, and we don't deserve that. So, Father, may we be merciful in our interactions with others, refusing to judge, refusing to imagine we have infallible knowledge of what you are doing in their lives. Lord, may we be those who show love and mercy, who help those who are in need, helping those who are struggling, reminding them of how you are a merciful God. And Father, may we in that way reflect your character. We pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.